Welcome to my passion project, the Bold Flavors Podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we're currently delivering over 1 million meals every single week in the UK. We are a data company that loves food and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect in-depth conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is about sharing some of these experiences with you. Rich is the founder of Headspace, the mindfulness app used by over 60 million users globally. I have known Rich for many years and I love his kind, grateful, optimistic and creative outlook on life. Gusto and Headspace are of similar size, so it's a real treat for me to talk to Rich regularly. After years in advertising and high levels of anxiety, serendipity led to the creation of Headspace. Founded in 2010, Headspace is one of the most impressive scale-ups, today employing over 300 people and still growing super fast. Today it offers so much more than mindfulness, from sleep practice to health products and John Legend joined as Chief Music Officer. In this episode, Rich will talk about how his personal struggles led to the creation of Headspace, what he's learned about himself on the founder to CEO journey, and how Headspace and also Gusto will be health companies by 2030. Rich, you have impacted so many lives so positively, and I'm super grateful to you. But before we talk about Headspace, I would love to hear where you grew up. Well, thanks for having me on. I, I grew up in Kent, so just south of London, near a place, the nearest kind of big town was, was Maidstone. But I kind of lived in the middle of the countryside, uh, kind of away from, <laughs> from a lot of people. So I kind of grew up out in the middle of nowhere, really. That was, that was my my existence but Kent is where I spent most of my time growing up and how was growing up like it was amazing in lots of ways and and challenging in in some my you know my parents split up when I was five I think like for any kid that goes through that it's never a, like a pleasant experience but at the same time I had a really kind of interesting creative mixed kind of childhood and I think part of uh, you know, I was talking about this with, with Andy the other day, and I think he had a not dissimilar experience where I think when you're brought up in the middle of nowhere, you kind of have to make up your own fun and be creative, and it allows you to have that space. And I think that, you know, hindsight's no sight, but I actually think looking back at that that childhood, um, and both my parents had their own businesses as well. So ever since I was, you know, my dad's still got the business that he had before I was born, and my mum's got still got the business that she had when she went back to work when, you know, when mom and dad split up at five. So I kind of always had that surrounding me as well. And so I think all of those things together had a really big impact on, yeah, big impact on my life. So I think it was, yeah, it was a mixture of challenging emotional things, but also a lot of, a lot of love and opportunity. And I was luckier than a, a lot of kids. And so did you from an early age feel like you're eventually going into business or becoming an entrepreneur or was there a moment in your life back then? It wasn't like I thought, oh, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I think it just, 
it was just very normal for me to think, oh, my parents work for themselves and they work really, really hard. And they, that's just how they go about their life. And I think, you know, cause my mum was a, you know, single working uh, parent. And so she would, when she picked me up from school, we'd go back to the shop and, you know, I would do my homework in the back of the shop and I'd see my dad leaving for work and all the stress of, I'd see all the stress of him running his own business. I think it, it was just very normal. And I think for a lot of people, it's kind of not normal, you know, but for me, it was just very normal. So I think it didn't feel like a scary idea. Like it just felt like what you do. Um, so I think I kind of always had this idea that I would work for myself. I just didn't know really what, what that was going to be. That makes sense. And what did you then study and why? <laughs> well, I actually started um, studying business studies when I left school, I hadn't really given it a lot of thought. And my, my dad, I think he definitely lent on that decision quite a lot. And I thought, well, I just, you know, my dad's got his own business. Maybe that'll be good training for me to go and do that. And I did it for a year and I absolutely hated it. It just wasn't for me. Like I didn't, I wasn't interested or passionate about business. And I was living with, you know, a bunch of really creative people, fine artists and uh, people at university that, actually I kind of was drawn towards and um and I, I was really passionate about film and documentaries and so I actually changed after my first year and and did a, a media and kind of broadcast journalism degree at the same university um so I completely swapped and and went down and went down that pathway which not uh, <laughs> not to the not to the pleasure of my parents but um it was something that i really i felt i, I felt <laughs> i think I you've done do. okay yeah <laughs> yeah it was fine it was good I, like honestly i do genuinely think that was one of the best best decisions that I, I made and i think i don't know if you had this experience too but at school i went to a very traditional school and so i kind of i didn't really realize that i was creative actually until i left school that was something that i kind of felt got encouraged when i met these people, you know, the, my friends at university, it was that that's led to the, you know, some really great things in my life. But that, that was the time where I kind of started to explore that. Oh, t totally similar. Um, I was a member of the physics society because that's kind of what my school encouraged. And, um, I was good at math and, you know, people focused on statistics and this stuff. Um, very, very science focused. What was your first job then? My first job was washing lorries and clearing building sites on vans. And I loved like manual labor. So I just loved being outside and doing that. So I used to do that in the summers, pretty much for most of my teenage years, actually. And I worked at Harrods, the department store in, in, in London. <laughs> I was a porter packer, packing up towels in the sales. And then, but my first proper job, full-time job was as a graduate trainee at McCann Erickson, the advertising agency in, in London. That was my first proper job. And when was that? That was 2002. Yeah, I joined it in 2002. How was advertising back then? And what, you know, how did you feel about it? What did you learn? I mean, I loved it. I've got to say, I, I kind of fell into it by mistake because I wanted to make documentaries. And then I realized that no one was going to pay me to do that. And how was I going to make a living? Um, and my friend just kind of said, have you ever thought about advertising? 
you know, it's creative and you can get paid for it. And it really was as, you know, as <laughs> well thought out as that. Um, and then I managed to get, um, still to say, one of my dear friends, Jay Haynes, was the guy that was running the graduate recruitment. And he, he took a chance on me. And everyone else had been to pretty much Oxford and Cambridge and Redbrook universities. And I, I hadn't. I'd gone to like Nottingham Trent, which was an old poly. And he kind of took a flyer on me. And I loved it. I, amazing people, really creative, really fun. As a young, you know, 22-year-old in in London, it was it was amazing. And like one of my first bosses, Anthony, he ended up, you know, I was best man at his wedding. And so I, I made friends for life. I'm still friends with all of those people that we kind of came up in that kind of industry together. And it was it was still fun then. It was kind of the last bit of the heyday, I'd say, of advertising. Um, but I learned everything. I learned about brand and strategy and business and I, I client relationships and it's really a great apprenticeship actually in lots of different things I found it very very useful and then in 2010 you decided to found Headspace but I'm sure a lot happened between the two how did you end up founding Headspace like what happened that got you um, to the initial idea well after the can I went to BBH that still one of my best professional experiences in lots of ways. It was an amazing agency doing like incredible work with the smartest people ever. And I got given a lot of opportunities there and they promoted me pretty young. When I left there, I was running the new business department and working on, on Zag, which was the brand invention part of the, of the company. And I think that partly to do with, with work, the work there, I think I'd become disillusioned with selling stuff to people that people didn't need, you know? Um, there was definitely a kind of something gnawing away in me that once the kind of fun and learning of the early years of my career had, had worn off, I definitely was like, oh, I'm not sure this is that fulfilling. And at the same time, I think I was having a bit of an, in, an internal kind of breakdown. I didn't really know if it was a slow progressive kind of uh, come into terms with myself and it was a big party lifestyle in, in advertising, like huge. And I think that really affected my mental health over time. And so, you know, I, in 2008, I was, I'd given up drinking, which is a big part of it. And then I was actually getting acupuncture at the time for my stress um, in inverted commas, <laughs> more, more to do with my lifestyle, I think. But I started doing that and then my acupuncture, the person I was getting acupuncture from said, look, have you ever thought about being an acupuncturist? I think you'd be really good. And I've got a course starting. And so I quit my job and, and became an acupuncturist pretty quickly. Um, and it was, wow. I think from all of my friends outside of, you know, that the, the were close to me, I had this really good job and my family as well. I had this really good job. I was getting paid a lot of money. All of a sudden, I, you know, I gave up drinking. Everyone was like, why? And then I was like, I'm going to become an acupuncturist. And everyone's like, I think he's gone mad. And actually my friends, <laughs> they actually, they, they had a bit of an intervention with me to kind of say like, what are you doing? Are you well? Is everything going all right? And I think in lots of ways I wasn't all right, but I knew that I knew that I didn't want to do, I didn't want to do what I've been doing before. And I knew that I wanted as cheesy as it sounds, I knew I wanted to kind of have like an impact 
like I definitely knew that I wanted to do something that had more meaning and acupuncture just felt like the right first step towards that. And it was brilliant. You know, I only did it for a year. I never thought I was actually going to be an acupuncturist, but it was a great space for me to kind of explore what I was going to do. And I was thinking about doing other business ideas. And then my friend who I was freelancing for, uh, a guy called Adam Breeden, who used who set up uh, um, All Star Lanes uh, in London. I was freelancing for those guys doing marketing, and he was getting meditation lessons off Andy when he was teaching, you know, in the city on in his clinic on London Wall. Yeah, and we we got introduced, and I was really struggling at that time. Like my anxiety had got really really bad. This was about a year after leaving BBH, and we did a skill swap. He taught me meditation and helped me so much with my anxiety and just my general, yeah, my general kind of well, internal well-being, however you want to describe it. And I gave up and I gave him some ideas to how he could market his, his clinic. And it was really organic. It was kind of, it was really a traditional old school skill swap that led to the, the forming of Headspace. Wow. So total serendipity. And how old were you back then? And so I left BBH at 27 and I met Andy at 20, 28. Yeah, I was 28 when I met Andy, the end of 2008. Wow. Okay. So you focused on advertising. You realized it's not for you. Serendipity happened. You met Andy. And how did this then morph into some kind of business idea? We were just both really passionate about how could we make meditation more available to more people, knowing that it was a really valuable skill, but not many people did it. And I know that might seem strange now because it feels like everyone's doing it, but um, it, it really was very, very niche back then. We had a belief that we could make it more accessible and, and, and build a, a platform for people to be able to learn it in a way that they'd never seen it before. So that was like the core premise of it. I think, you know, I originally pitched him an app um, and he said it would never work because traditionally meditation has always been taught from teacher to student in a kind of like all, he comes from an oral lineage, like the Kagyu lineage that he comes from is, 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 te is taught from teacher to student. You can trace it back two and a half thousand years, every single teacher, every single student. And so he said that like, it won't work on a, you know, it won't work digitally. So we started doing events and then the event business really acted like a, a research lab you know we got two to four hundred people in london every four to six weeks uh, and this wasn't intentional by the way we actually were generally trying to build an event event business we would we weren't we weren't that smart but it you know looking back on it it was amazing because i got to speak to every single person that came to that event what did you like what didn't you like we had like very detailed feedback cards that everyone would have we'd make the we we wouldn't let people leave until they filled out their feedback forms and that told us everything that really did all of that work. And it started off as an eight hour. The first event was eight hours at BAFTA on Piccadilly back in 2010. Um, and it eventually ended up as 60 minute events. And we run three or four in a day at different time slots um, in a, you know, at the lookout in, um, in Hyde Park. So it really did, really did for, and then in 2012, when we launched the app, all of that, work from the events really went into and the clinic that Andy had been running where he's working with people one-on-one -on -one, that really led into subscription I'd say at that point that's when we became a business and it was like oh wow this this actually could be a business 
we didn't know whether it would work, but I think it was at that point that it felt like, all oh, right, this actually could be something big. So it was never, I say all that because it was never our intention to build a big business or to be business people. <laughs> it's just, unfortunately, it's kind of, in lots of ways, it's ended up like that. Talk me through how did you then end up in the US versus the UK and how long did it yeah. take, you know, until it actually felt like this is a business as opposed to an idea? Yeah, as I say, the event business was a brilliant research experiment, but an awful business. And we didn't, we didn't make any money and all our friends and family had given us small checks to keep going and had, and we kept going back to, and some of Andy's clients that came to the clinic basically said, just look, we love you guys. You're really nice, but we're not giving you any more money for this crazy idea. And so we had, we had about 50,000 pounds left total in the business from, and we'd got that, we, some of that had come from a book deal that we, we got with Hodder and Staunton. Um, and some of it was from some of the event money. And so we kind of bent the house on building the subscription platform and none of us had any digital experience. That really was the bet of on the business. Like, could it be a business? And we got the Guardian newspaper uh, in the UK the 1st January of 2012 to put a million booklets on the front of every single Guardian. And it was 10 steps, wow. you know, how to meditate. And that really did launch the brand. Like without that, And then we also got Virgin Atlantic to put all our content on all of their planes. And that really did launch the business. And we took, I remember because I was watching the counter come on, I was watching the subscriptions come in when we launched and we took 32,000 pounds in that, that January, which was for us as a small team, like we'd never seen that, of course, that uh, revenue. And, and it was, it, it was like, Oh, this is a real thing. But you also got to remember it's 2012, the app store doesn't, there's definitely no meditation apps and there's very few subscription products actually out there. So it was, it was really early to be doing it, but we felt that there was something pretty powerful. And that was the time where we were like, Oh, this actually could be a real business. Amazing. And I mean, if you fast forward to today, you know, you announced raising almost a hundred million dollars earlier this year, you're a large business now, you know, can you share how big the team today is? Yeah, the team's about 330 people split between yeah, London, New York, San Francisco and LA with the main main portion of us all in, in LA. So it's grown pretty dramatically since. since huge. Congratulations. Wow. And how, I mean, I've got so many questions on that. And how has your role as the, you know, the founder evolved? Um, you're now the CEO. How has it changed? changed a lot i think obviously in the early days you're kind of doing everything um i don't know about you timo but yeah, it was difficult i found it difficult to let go of those things in the early days um <laughs> it's I think totally the same you feel like you're the only person that can can do it the way that you want to do it which may be true but might not be the right thing <laughs> and might not be the best thing <laughs> um they're not they're not the same thing and so that definitely was a hard learning curve for me i think when up until 50 people although it was chaotic in lots of ways it was much i found that the chaos was easier to manage in a way um because you could still transmit the way that you wanted to do things and people could pick up on your cues and you're all in kind of one office it's just like much much easier i think when it 
got up to 100, it felt like, oh, this is different. And then when it got to 150, I felt like things really started to get tricky. Um, I just think that how you maintain that culture and how you kind of push decision-making down, all those things become much, much harder when you scale. And so I think your your role, I feel, kind of went, for myself at least, went from you're kind of constantly thinking about how you can innovate and be creative and and push the product forward to you really have to dig into, wow, how are we going to scale this thing and how do we bring in the right people and what are the systems? And, you know, I just never, my brain had never operated like that. Um, I don't, you know, being completely honest, I don't think it's my my core strength either. So it that is really, really tough. And, and up until 2015, Andy and I were kind of co-CEOs and we had no structure, completely flat, although we had those titles. There was no real structure at the company. And then my really good friend, Sean Brecker, took over from 2015 when we did the A round to about 2017, something like that, 18, no, 17. He asked us to be the CFO and then I, I came back and did the, and I've been doing the CEO job, you know, ever since then. So there's been a couple of different transition points, but it's, I don't know if you felt the same team though, but it, it changed like the things that you have to learn at every single stage of growth are really, really different. And I feel like I've had 20 different jobs actually at the company as it's scaled. Like it's just a different thing every time you get to the, the kind of the next hill, there's another thing to, to kind of always learn. So yeah, I've, I found that the role has adapted and changed a huge amount. It's exactly the same for me and it never stops. There's, there's not been a single year in which my job hasn't completely changed. So how do you then no. develop as a CEO and, you know, do you have principles or mantra or how did you manage to kind of cling on and, you know, be ahead of the growth curve? Well, there's a few things. Like, look, we and um, we just hired about seven months ago. I hired a CC Morgan from from Intuit, who's our president and COO, who's just been. I mean, she's amazing. We're so lucky to have her. And uh, you know, I brought her in to really. It took me about 14 months to to find her. And I interviewed a lot of people. You know, someone that's got real operational experience at scale. You know, she she'd been at Intuit for. 13 years and had seen incredible growth there um worked on inarguably one of the best cultures as well in in the valley like known for having an incredible incredible culture and that was really important to me someone that could build a people first kind of operational system um and that's just something i think unless you've seen that i think there's there's a few very skilled people that can can learn that and and do it having never done it before you know i'm definitely not one of those people i think i I tried a lot of things and realized that the company actually needs someone with those skills so i've i've kind of definitely worked out the things that i'm good at the things that i'm not the any where i want to spend my energy where i don't want to spend my energy and so i think to your answer your question about the growth i think one of the most important things actually is really understanding your strengths and weaknesses and how you can bring in the pe- the right people at the right time to supplement your growth so you can learn off them but more importantly so the organization can keep growing it at the rate it needs to grow at even if your capabilities are kind of tapping out and so i think the people around you are just absolutely critical for for staying ahead of that i think there's some personal things that 
you know, I try and read and, and speak to as many people as I can. I've got an incredible network of friends and advisors and, you know, people that I, I just kind of go to for different things. That's really helped. Yeah, just try and read as much as I can from as many different people as I can. And then I think personally, the, the big thing beyond the learning with the business stuff is how do you stay sane and, and well over a long period of time? And so for me, I've learned that I have to meditate. It's probably not that's unsurprising for you, but I, I have to meditate every single day. I have to get regular exercise. I have to eat a relatively balanced diet. If I just eat, you know, junk, I just I can't, I can't kind of perform very well, and I don't feel great. And I need to get into nature. Like I need to surf. I need to hike. I need to do the things that we're lucky enough to do out here on the on the west coast. But they're things that I know I. I have to do. And then I also need to spend time with my wife and my daughter. We were talking earlier, like my wife and my daughter and, and friends. Like you have to have that balance in your life. Like if it's all work all the time, I just don't think you can be, I don't think you can be productive. I don't think you can learn. I don't think you can grow. And I don't think you can see. I just don't think you get perspective unless you have, or I can't. I don't know whether that's the same for, for other people, but I just, I know for myself, I need, I need those things in order to be able to, Yeah. It's a super powerful point. And I, I particularly love the point about weakness obsession. I think so many people are so focused all day long on, oh, I need to get better at X, Y, and Z. Whereas if you can give people 10% more of what you're famous for and what your super strengths are, you really inspire people. And then once in a while, you have to apologize for not being amazing at this and this, and you have to solve for it. Yeah. Um, so I love the self-awareness you've created and, and surrounding yourself with people who kind of balance um, your strengths. And also the, you know, the awareness of what energizes you uh, is such a powerful point you made. And if you focus on on the team and the board for a second, how have you found the transition mm. from you, the founder, kind of taking every decision to pretty much empowering a leadership team? And the same question, I guess, for the board, you know, what makes a board good and how do you manage the board? Well, on the first one with the team, I think the biggest kind of experiment I've had on that is probably with, you know, bringing CC into the company. And I see like my main job actually is, how do I set her up for success and the team, that obviously the team that report into her as well, but really how do I kind of unblock kind of pathways for her to be successful so that she can concentrate on, you know, really executing against this plan that we've got. And I, I found it to be really liberating and to have that much trust in someone to let them kind of run at things in their own way. Like I've actually really enjoyed that process. So it's, you know, as I say, we were only kind of five or six months into that, but we've been working together, you know, for maybe eight months actually, because we were working before she, she joined on a lot of things. I thought I'd find it a lot more harder than I, don't, than I have is, is the truth, but I've actually found it to be really awesome. And I think that's a lot to do with her and the relationship that, that, that her and I have. And just one more thing on that, actually, before I move on to the board, is I think as much as possible, yeah, how do you just keep pushing decisions away from you? Where, wherever you are in an org, I think is a really interesting kind of thing to always check yourself. You know, how are you letting people make the decisions that they need to make without you being involved? I think is a really hard thing to do, but a really good challenge to kind of consistently ask yourself as a, as a leader. 
and it's something that I was really bad at and I think I've got a bit better at, you know, um, over time. So that, that's just one more thing I add to that. The board, I think, look, I think the, the real power of a board is to have, they see the business obviously in the reports that you're giving them as part of your, your process. But the real power of a great board is that they have a very different perspective on the business than you can ever have because they're not in the day-to-day. They get this 100,000-foot view. I think boards shouldn't operate as uh, in-the-weeds, kind of tactical, getting in every single detail operationally because I just don't think they can ever be as good as your team at that because they're just not close enough to it. I don't think anyone could kind of parachute in and be good at those things. And so I think part of the job of a CEO is trying to make sure that doesn't happen, you know, with a board and that you are using them for your hardest and biggest questions. They should be the smartest people that you know with very different points of view. And you should be able to pose the questions that you don't know the answers to or that you're trying to work through. And so be very specific about, okay, this is how the meeting's going to run. This is what we're going to be discussing. Really good pre-read documents. And then clear success criteria for, okay, this would be a successful meeting if we get through A, B, and C, and we can get kind of alignment points of view on on these topics. Like being very clear and intentional about that, I think is is good. And then running the more detailed you know, financial questions, analysis in between those board meetings so that you don't get caught up in that, in the actual quarterly kind of reviews. I also think then incredible opportunity for the leaders in the company to come in and and be involved in that discussion as they talk about the things that they're, they're working on. I think it's a really good forcing function for the company to come together to say every quarter, like, what are we most excited about? Where do we think we could be going? What have we learned? That is a good forcing function as part of that kind of board dynamic and it creates a different atmosphere and and kind of conversation. So I think if you get it right, your board can be incredibly powerful. That's a great point. Do you think you would join other boards in the future for fun and for learning? Yeah, I, I would never say no. It's not something that I'm kind of actively thinking about myself but you know i'm not trying to get onto <laughs> is the truth but i would never say never if it was the right thing and i felt like i could add value and it was something i was passionate about i get asked to invest in things as you know to, to help the companies i i don't i'm not a, probably the smartest investor but i just have like these three criteria which is do i like the, the person like do i connect with the person on a, on a human level is the product that they're building having that impact on the world? Uh, and do I think I can help? And so I don't I never really look at the numbers or anything. It's just I need to be able to answer those, those things pretty clearly in my mind. And so I probably would go through a similar process if, if I was thinking about a board. What about you? Would you like to be on boards? I've joined two boards over the course of the last 18 months. And... I have massively, massively enjoyed it. You know, I, I felt like it's a great vantage point in just seeing the dynamic of other businesses, seeing leadership teams talk, getting exposure to other stuff. And, and also the opportunity to get out of your business on a day-to-day -day basis is absolutely awesome, I think. 
So yeah. as of yesterday, I joined a, a fairly big board for the first time. Until now, I've, I've been on scale-up boards. And now I'm joining a properly mature business um, you know, with hundreds of millions of profits and, and proper corporate governance. And for me, it's fun to see how Gusto could evolve over the next couple of years, getting to a similar position on some of those vectors. Yeah, no, I, I love it from a learning perspective. Let's talk about mindfulness for a moment. I love the product you've built and I truly, truly believe in the power. My wife and I have done, you know, Headspace for many years. So big thanks, um, you know, to you for making our lives better. Do you personally use mindfulness in the leadership context? Can you see how the principles kind of apply to business and leadership? Yeah, definitely. Um, just quickly as well, I know you said at the top, I we just want to, anyone that kind of gets like benefit from the product, just want to say a massive thank you to our team that, you know, that work tirelessly trying to bring it to all our members. So it's always, it's always great to hear when people use it. I think the, the thing that I think about mindfulness is a way that you can use in any aspect of life. And I think so much of our health and happiness is based on our relationships, relationship with ourselves. And, you know, as a result of getting a better relationship with ourselves, we, we start to have a better relationship with people around us. And I think that they're absolutely essential skills in a business context as well, uh, but also in, in life, which is, I think, unless you're aware of, you know, your stuff and how it, it affects the way that you react, the way that you make decisions, the way that, you know, how patient you are, all those things. I think unless you can actually sit with your mind and understand how it works, it's impossible to make any changes to it in order to become more skillful. And I think that if you think about listening, you know, so often we are listening to people as kind of like an echo of ourselves, you know, like you're kind of, you're listening to someone and you've already got a judgment about what you want them to say or what they are saying. And you've got a storyline going on in your head. If you're not actually just listening to what someone says, like listening in a business context, I think is one of the most powerful tools that you can, you can have. If you think about if you're managing the direct report, if you're listening to feedback, the things that you can pick up from people that maybe you wouldn't have kind of expected that particular answer, unless you're listening really clearly with an open and curious mind, you actually can't be making great decisions. You can't be leading the company in a, in a thoughtful way. And I, you know, if I was to sum it up, mindfulness gives you that ability to listen to yourself so that you can then learn how to listen to others <laughs> without judgment. You know, I think that that is a really powerful, beautiful skill that you can never stop learning and never get kind of, never complete in a way. And so I think that's really powerful. I think creativity as well. Like if you think about if you're stressed and you've got a million things and you're multitasking and you're, try, you're just trying to do too much kind of, you know, my friend would say like a busy fool, you don't really allow creativity to come in. Like if you think about when your best creative ideas, often it's like, oh, I was just in the shower and this great idea came around. It's not, it's because you had the space for that idea to come. Like we have this natural curiosity, intelligence, creativity. Every person has that. I'm like absolutely convinced they do. It's just, do we give it the space in order for it to bubble up? And then do we have the skill to be able to listen to it when we need to? 
unless you work out a way to look after your mind for that to happen. I, I think it's really difficult to be creative. Businesses need constant creativity to innovate, to make better decisions, to have better cultures, to lead. And so I think all of those things are absolutely essential skills that mindfulness can can really help you with. Yeah, I think it's a super powerful point. I find my diary relentlessly challenging and I literally have to block like hours and hours just to have headspace to think creatively. And also what mindfulness really taught me is to shift away from expectation towards appreciation and to create space for me to really you know, focus on appreciation and all the stuff I'm thankful for, because I feel like business can be relentlessly focused on the future and results, you know, and if this works, well, let's make it 10% better, let's make it bigger and so on and, and go faster. And it, it's, um, you know, enormously hard because it never changes and the expectation always grows. So that appreciation focus versus expectation is uh, something that mindfulness has massively taught me over the last couple of years. And let's just um, briefly stay on product. What excites you personally the most? You know, you're venturing into health and international. I saw you've got the chief music officer, John Legend. That's absolutely amazing. You know, on a personal level, what, what excites you? I think the thing that really excites me that we're building at the moment is, and I know it's just something that, you know, you're passionate about, uh, Gusto as well, but is the most personalized experience to help you with your kind of health goals that we can build. And at the moment, you know, I don't think we've delivered that for our members, but we will be doing over the next couple of quarters where, you know, our dream is that Timo, your headspace experience is completely unique to you. And my headspace experience is completely unique to me based on the outcomes that, you know, that I'm, I'm looking to achieve, whether that's to reduce stress or to sleep better or improve my relationships or whatever it may be, so that that can be a highly personalized dynamic journey. I think that's going to become increasingly important and something that, you know, we're really, we're really passionate about as a team. So that, I think, is the thing I'm, I'm most excited about from a, a product point of view. What I find super fascinating is, is that, you know, for the last 50 years, people have been popping pills and that's been considered health. And for the next 50 years, people will focus on fitness, food and, and mindfulness um, in various kind of forms. So I can see how Headspace and Gusto become health companies by 2030. Um, you know, it might be not possible to see that today. But if you look at the capabilities you're building and the portfolio of, of products Headspace is, is creating, you know, you might be able to see it by 2025, but surely by 2030, both our companies will be perceived as health companies, but Agreed. it's amazing and, and just not visible today. So that really excites me. Like if you think about the future of consumer health, you have to believe that consumers are going to become more educated about their health. Therefore, they're going to start to trust brands for things that they've never trusted before and new and probably new emerging brands you know business leaders are going to have to take an outsized role in the health of their of their employee base in order to attract and retain talent and you know they'll have to become the chief medical and health officers of their company as well as the ceos i'm i'm convinced of that Amazing. and yeah. and and yeah. healthcare is going to get disrupted massively as a result and you're going to see digital platforms and prevention become a massive part of reducing healthcare costs because there's just too many dollars 
especially here in the States, dealing with it at, at the end of the system and how data plays a role in that is going to be really exciting. So I agree that companies like Gusto and, and, and us are going to, you know, I think they will be perceived as health companies. Absolutely. Um, just as a final question, what tips do you have for, you know, people on the leadership journey or entrepreneurs um, that have built companies and are now scaling, just particularly focused on the difficulties of the scaling journey? What are your top tips? Definitely hire a world-class people leader way earlier than you think. I think that is a big mistake. I, you know, I definitely made that. I think I didn't, haven't really understood the full power of having that role early in a, in a company to really help, help you with your people systems. That's one thing. I think surrounding yourself with really thoughtful advisors that are operators that have seen operations at scale and at different points of scale so that you can learn from all the mistakes that they made, I think is, is really vital. And I think that thing that we talked about earlier, which is, which is knowing, really being very clear about where the strengths and weaknesses are on your top team and knowing that not every single person is going to be able to scale as quickly as the company. And how do you make those changes at the right time in order to kind of, you know, match the scale of the, 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 the growth of the company versus the people? And they don't always match. And that's a really hard thing, I think, as a, as a leader. So I think, yeah, they'd be the biggest things, I think, looking back. Thank you so much, Rich, for your time and generosity. It's really, really appreciated. 